Hi, it's Julie. Before we start the show, I just want to thank you for listening. And if you enjoy our podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps get our show out in front of new listeners. Thanks again for listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. We hope you enjoy this interview. Julie Hockheiser Ilkovich. Today I'm here with Marissa Bardak Rammel. She's the author of The Goodbye Diaries and she's a program advisor at Syracuse University, Newhouse NYC, and she's a dear friend. So, welcome, Marissa. Thank you so much for being on Coffee Break with New York Wiki. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me, Julie. It's always a pleasure to see you. I'm so, so excited to have you here and to be talking to you today, talk about your book. And your many uh, your your many years of your career working in this industry. What a wild ride, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, definitely a wild ride, as any um, magazine editor or former magazine editor can attest to. Um, so I'm I'm sure we have plenty to talk about. Oh, buckle up! I always want to start this podcast talking about coffee. I've said this many times. I learned so much from the women I talked to about what their coffee drink says about them. And I will say, Marissa brought me coffee today, which is so nice. I was supposed to bring you coffee, I think. That's the way it's supposed to go. But she brought me a delicious coffee. So what is your coffee drink of choice? And then we can really dissect like dissect what it means. Okay, I'm not sure what this means about <laughs> me, but my coffee of choice is really like a crappy cup of bodega coffee. Just like it. plain coffee, milk, no sugar. Like, I don't know what it says about me. I'm very low maintenance, I guess. Like, I don't take a lot of time doing my hair or, like, putting on no much nonsense. makeup. No nonsense. I think it means no nonsense. <laughs> I guess, except I like to have fun. No nonsense sounds, like, boring and stuffy, which isn't me. I think I'm just kind of low-key and easy. Like, you can give me the crappiest cup of coffee, and I'll be like, this is delicious. This has made my day complete. Easy going. I like it, yeah. And I think maybe cheap. I have to, I'm going to be honest. Like, I'm a little bit frugal and, like, I kind of just want to pay like a dollar fifty for my coffee, like <laughs> so. <laughs> you know, but if you don't care, like not saying you don't care about the quality, but if you know, a lot of us like kind of all co- like I'm happy with all coffee. Why do I pay more for coffee? Right. right. Yeah. What and, a lesson. And like one thing nice right now is that for the past few years I've been drinking decaf coffee, and I just switched back to caffeine, oh. and I have to say. There's like a secret thrill I get from it. Like I'm back in the coffee club because before I would be drinking decaf and people would be like, that's not real coffee. Or they would come over my house and I would be like, do you want some coffee? I was like, by the way, it's decaf. And they would look at me like I was insane. Like, like no thanks. why would I ever drink that? Like, no, I don't want your decaf coffee. So um, I feel a little like I'm back in the club now. Like I just want to like cheers everyone every time I have coffee. Welcome back. Well, I also was a decaf drinker for a long time and I'm back on the caffeine and it's real it is something special I, I, I can I get a lot more done in a day now <laughs> <laughs> we're super caffeinated over here in case you can't tell um so we have known each other we have crossed paths I want to you know you to share your career path where you started and kind of 
what took you down the road, what the different stops along the way were, and also, you know, how some of those things have overlapped, right? Because you've been doing multiple jobs basically at a time, many, many times. So take us through it. Um, what has your journey been? Okay, so I've always loved writing, and I went to Syracuse University um, to their Newhouse School of Communications, and I studied magazine journalism. And I um, initially went into um, the digital side of publishing. So I first worked at Alloy, um, and I did everything from write horoscopes. Sorry to <laughs> bust all your bubbles about horoscopes. I'm sure some sites really use an astrologer, as I learned later in my career, but at smaller sites, they didn't at that point. Um, this is the second interview I've done in the past couple of weeks where we've talking shit about uh, horoscopes, so I really sincerely apologize. <laughs> Please don't turn this off slash send us hate mail. I did write them based on the characteristics of okay. the signs, so I wasn't... Not based on nothing. You... No. Okay. And, and also sometimes based on what my friends of that sign were going through <laughs> at the time, which felt a little bit at least inspired by reality. Yes. <laughs> um, so I worked at Alloy, and then I got my first job at a magazine, which was working for Seventeen, for Seventeen.com, and that's where Julie and I first met. We were both hired around the same time, and I think like the same like day. I, I think or week. so, and we just instantly loved each other. We're both very energetic and passionate about our careers, and loved writing, and loved the teen world at that time, yes. and oh. just instantly connected. So. Um, and I feel like it's one of those things, like, even though I'm seeing you today, if and we haven't been able to catch up in a while, it feels like old times because I that know. was such, like, a formative part of our career I and know. becoming people in our careers. And um, I think that's one of, like, the treasures early in your careers mm -hmm. that the people you meet really do become lifelong friends. Mm -hmm. um, so true. That was a really great group. And, like, I feel like all those people that we worked with and knew, they'd gone so many places. So it's kind of an interesting lesson in like bonding with the people you work with, but then all these opportunities open up for you, right? Like completely like Gloria Dawson, who we both worked with took photographs of grapefruits for my book cover. Oh my God. That's am I didn't know that. That's yeah. amazing. I um, love that. She oh. was, she was a photo editor at 17 and <gasps> still a talented photographer and journalist. And so, um, I love how all those connections come back. That. I and, love it. And so from 17.com, um, the next position I took was at Prevention Magazine. Um, so I went from the teens to the sort of 40, 50 something women who were concerned about their health. And I worked for prevention.com as an editor. Um, and then that sort of became during the magazine recession, the recession in general. Right, um, yeah, that, that exact timing. hit the magazine industry very hard. Um, and at that point, I decided to make a career pivot and just said, you know what, I just, I know magazines will be here. I know magazine websites will be here. And I am on like the safe side, you know, in air quotes of the magazines. But the morale was so low, I realized I needed a, a larger skill set. And so I actually took a position for a best-selling author. Um, She's a personal finance author. And I ended up working there for six years, which came as a shock to me. Um, wow. But I did everything there from, um, you know, working on her website and social media to doing her publicity and marketing and helping do research for her books, helping do research for um, a presidential council that she was a part of. Um, and it was this job that really did grow my skill set because I just had to wear 
a million hats mm-hmm. and just say yes to every thing they asked me to do. Um, and that's part of why I stayed there so long was because the job kept changing every year and it, I kept learning and I kept growing. And I feel like as long as you're learning and growing, um, it's a great job and you, and you can have longevity there. Um, and then from there, um, I definitely took another career pivot. Um, I had spent some time um, during that time doing a side hustle called The Resume Hero, which mm-hmm. I did with my oh, husband, yeah. Mark Rammel. And he is a graphic designer, so I would do the editorial work on a resume and he would do the graphic design work. And we worked with clients across all different industries. And I always loved that work. And I had also had this other side hustle as an adjunct professor at Syracuse University. Um, And I sort of ended up being able to combine those two things and work again for Syracuse University now as a program advisor for Newhouse NYC, which is basically an air quote again, study abroad program where students in the communication school come to New York City. They get these great media internships during the day and then they take classes at our educational facility at night. Um, And I'm a program advisor, which basically means I'm sort of like a guidance counselor for them. I help them with their cover letters and resumes. I hear about the ups and downs of their internships and try to help them advocate for themselves and get the experience they want out of their internships. And um, hopefully I I help them with some advice on who to network with and how to eventually get a job in the industry. Um, So that really takes me to where I am today. (laughs) And then as this other like lifelong side hustle yeah. has been writing this book, which is now will finally be published um, on May 7th. So exciting, congratulations. And Thank the book you. is The Goodbye Diaries. We'll talk much more about it in this interview. To start, you know, how did you balance writing the book? Talk a little bit about what the book is, you know, because it's very unique and it had a unique process, I think, um, based on the subject matter and how it was created. So how did you do it and how long did it take? And then how did you balance it? with what you were doing otherwise. Sure, so I'll tell you a little bit about the book first. Um, So the book is called The Goodbye Diaries. It's a mother-daughter memoir. And I started writing it with my mother when I was in college. So I was around 18 years old. And um, the year prior, she had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And she was initially told she had two months to live. And Um, luckily she ended up outliving that prognosis and she called me one night when I was in college and said you know everyone keeps telling me to write a book I don't think I can write one on my own but what if we wrote one together and I immediately loved that idea I was studying journalism and the next time I was home on break we sat on my bed in my childhood bedroom and kind of mapped out the chapters that we wanted to write about we wanted to write about her diagnosis we wanted to write about um, how our friendships changed in that time. We wanted, she wanted to write about how her marriage changed in that time. Um, we wanted to write about this really big fight we had after she was diagnosed. Um, and so um, we each started working on our chapters separately because we thought, what if the book alternates chapters between the two of us? So um, you know, you hear about the diagnosis, but you hear about it from her perspective as the patient and as a mom. And then you hear about her diagnosis from my perspective as a teenager um, who's really scared of losing her mom. And so um, we each kind of separated and started writing our chapters. And I remember with the first chapter that we, the next time I was home from college, we swapped chapters and we read each other's. 
And I remember it specifically because she read my chapter about her diagnosis and she burst out at one point. She said, I always knew you thought I was a hypochondriac. (laughs) (laughs) And she was very funny and sarcastic um, and also very like warm and loving. And that was, um, I just can hear her voice still (laughs) shrieking that um, and laughing. And she had this really loud laugh. And um, so she wrote her chapters right away because she all of a sudden had a lot of time she had to retire from teaching um but she also knew she didn't have a lot of time left so she really started writing and throwing herself into that writing process and i think it was very cathartic for her and um and then i was trying to write chapters while i was in college sort of balancing classes and playing in a band and going out with friends and all the other things you do in college um so I, I wrote definitely fewer chapters in that time. I really wrote the majority of my chapters after she passed away. She died um, when I was 20 in between my junior, uh, in between my sophomore and junior years of college. And I worked on it a, a little bit in those, like the following two years of college, mm-hmm. but really I worked on it the most once I graduated college and I was in my career you know at nights I would meet with a writing group Um, I would set aside time on the nights and weekends to work on my chapters Um, and then really in my later 20s and 30s it was trying to figure out okay now I have my chapters and her chapters and how do they all fit together to tell the story of how our relationship changed in that time that she was sick with cancer we we were really close um, prior to her being diagnosed and her illness really separated us. Um, I had a lot of denial about her illness and um, we really had to work hard to develop our friendship again. And the book is really a story about how our relationship changed and how we found each other again. It's so beautiful and it's amazing. I'm so excited for everyone to read it. And just the, the, the process is so interesting. And it, you know, we were talking before about Um, someone else that we know who wrote a play and it took them eight years and just in general I think the lesson that I took away from your experience and from that other friend's experience is like it's a process it can take a long time it does for a lot of people and I'm sure at times it feels like this is just either never gonna happen or like this is like taking too long Um, but it's such an inspiration to be like the side hustle can be a creative project. It doesn't have to be this, you know, money-making entrepreneurial thing. And, and eventually, you know, that is just, is a long way, not even eventually is just as fulfilling, right? Very much so. Um, I definitely thought I would publish the book in my early twenties. I thought I lost my mom when I was 20. We had already started this book. I was becoming an editor. Um, and I felt like, oh, clearly I'll publish this book. Like, in my early 20s, you know? And I believe in general that there's a reason for things and I keep trying to figure out why it took as long as it did. And I really think that I had to become a mother myself in order to figure out how my mother's chapters were a part of this story. Um, So when I was working on the book in my 20s, this is sort of an embarrassing confession, but when I was working on the book in my 20s, I thought my mom's chapters were really boring. <laughs> I, typical daughter, oh, typical daughter. I know, it's so painful. But I, I would read through the manuscript 
and I would like lovingly reread my own chapters and then I would sort of like skim my mom's and then I'd lovingly read my own chapter again, skim my mom's. And then I became pregnant and I became a mom myself. I now have two young children, a son who's three and a half and a daughter who's about to turn one. And now I think my mom's chapters are so much better than mine. <laughs> like it's no contest. Like. And I'm so interested in them and I'm so fascinated by them. And it's even more fascinating how much my perspective has changed on them. So I really think I had to understand both characters. I I very much understood mine. I understood the plight of the teenager receiving this devastating news. But I didn't really understand my mom's. I thought I did, but I I didn't. And it's those things, those like intangible things that you just don't know until mm-hmm. you become a mom yourself. Right. You have to see it from that perspective. A lot of people, particularly who are in this industry, who work in media, you know, they want to write a book and have a lot of ideas, and that's a nice creative outlet for them. Um, you think it feels daunting. Maybe the space feels crowded. Like, oh, everyone's trying to write a book, right? And I'm sure for you, you're like, I've been writing a book for so many years. Like, this is not, I didn't just come up with this. Um, so what was the process like for you to, you know, you, you finished the book or you had an amount you felt comfortable sharing. How did you go about actually getting an agent, getting it published? Like, what was that process like? And kind of what advice would you have for people who want to do that? A lot of parts of the process... I had to learn so much about. Um, For a long time, I just focused on writing the book. I was in these writers groups and where we would just submit work once a week and then review each other's work. I was also in writers groups where we honestly just sat together, both of us on our laptops and wrote just Mm -hmm. so we had a devoted time to write because it can be hard to carve out that time. Um, And with a nonfiction book or a memoir, you can submit a proposal to a literary agent um, and then that literary agent can submit it to a publisher without having written the whole book, um, which is different in fiction. If you're writing a novel, you have to have a complete manuscript in order to find a literary agent and publisher most of the time. However, um, with my book, I honestly didn't really understand how the book would all come together Mm -hmm. and I felt like I had to write the entire manuscript before pitching myself to a literary agent or publisher. Um, So I really spent many, many years on the side of a full-time job just focusing on the writing. Um, And then in 2014, I finished writing the manuscript and I had... um, an editor review it because I really hadn't shared it with anyone before. That was the first person who ever <laughs> read the whole manuscript, which sounds crazy, but like I hadn't even shared it with my husband. Yeah. Like I just felt very protective of it. And I also always felt like, oh, well, I'll share it with people when it's more final. I didn't realize that would be such a long process. Right. Um, so I sent it to an editor, and when I felt like it was in good shape, I started pitching it to literary agents and I was very lucky to find um, two literary agents who worked together at this agency called Thompson Literary Agency um, run by Meg Thompson and the agent I work with is Cindy Ya and they really just believed in the book. Um, I was felt very lucky that they just believed in the story. Um, I always had this fear because it does alternate characters. It alternates between my mother and me 
And I always had a fear that someone would say, oh, it's a great book, we want it, but you have to get rid of your mom's chapters. Um, because it is, it can be challenging to have two protagonists right. in a book. Typically it's when you- equal, right? Like, do, there really are balanced. Yeah, and especially in a memoir. I think you find that more in fiction, but in memoir, it's unusual to have two main characters telling a story. Um, so I always had this fear, and then I was, I just felt so gratified when these two literary agents who I really respected and admired just loved it as it was. They had changes for me, and I worked together with them to edit the book, but it, there was nothing severe that just felt heartbreaking to me. Like, I was always worried, okay, I can make the book a commercial success, but it's going to be... I'm going to have to sacrifice something really important to me. And mm -hmm. it was such a personal topic that I just didn't know what I would do if I came to that crossroads. Right. Um, so I was very thankful that I didn't have to. Um, and then they started pitching it to publishers. Um, I'll be honest, the first round, pu no publisher took it. Um, they Basically, what literary agents do, what I learned is that they pitch it to the major publishers. And then they try to get feedback. And then authors and agents will go back and kind of like think about the feedback and work together to reshape the manuscript and try to pitch it again. Um, so that's what I did. And for about two years, I spent editing the manuscript. I actually spent a long time considering making it a young adult memoir. Um, however, I did feel like if it were a young adult memoir, that's when my mother's chapters would really take a back seat. Right. And so I worked really hard to do that. And I actually spoke to an editor who was going to help me edit it. She was a young adult editor. And I kind of loved her because she was really a badass. <laughs> and I spoke to her on the phone. I'll never forget this. I spoke to her on the phone. And I started telling her I'm revising this memoir. It's a mother-daughter memoir, but I'm revising it for a young adult audience. And I was telling her about it. And she said, I'm going to stop you. It sounds like this wasn't your idea to make it a young adult memoir, and it sounds like you don't really believe in it, and it sounds like this is not the book you want to create. And if I smell that, any publisher is going to smell that. You're going to have to continue working on this book that you don't really believe in. I'm not buying it. I love it, though. Honesty, right? It, it was, I, I, mean, I was speechless. I couldn't, I was like, uh, okay, thanks, bye. Like, what a lesson. Wow. Oh my gosh. And and I hung up and I just said, you know what? She's right. right. This, it, this isn't my book. This young adult book. I love the idea of it. Like you and I, Julie, both worked right, for young adult world. audiences. But it this book wasn't that. Mm -hmm. This book was some was this like very sacred project that my mom and I had done together. And I do think it has a young adult readership, but it also has an adult readership. It has both. And I think so many books have that crossover appeal right. now. But it couldn't be only a young adult book. It had to be both. Um, I think it's a great lesson just in terms of anyone who wants to start any kind of pro creative project about like authenticity. Like I think to me that really resonates where it's like, oh yeah, if you're doing... And I think that's very common in the age we're in where it's like we see what's successful and people constantly trying to emulate it. But, you know, there's a level, I mean... Who knows if we're listening to this woman who <laughs> shall not be named, but there is a level of like, if it's not authentic and we talk about authenticity, I think all the time in communications and media, people are going to smell the bullshit. Oh my gosh. And I'm so happy right now that I don't have to sit here and talk to you about my Your young, young adult, adult memoir that I don't really believe in. But the funny thing about that editor is that when I finally, so I ended up reshaping this manuscript 
and then my literary agent went back and sold it to an independent publisher um, called Wyatt McKenzie. They're located in Oregon. And um, when I went through this publisher, the one thing that they required, because they're a smaller publisher, they said, you know what, we want you to hire the editor. Oh. And so guess who I hired? Yes! <laughs> I said, you know what, I want the badass because she's gonna tell me how it is. I had only ever hired nice people before, people I knew or people right. who had lost a mother or people who would really understand it. And I said, you know what, I'm gonna be brave and I'm gonna hire the badass and let her tell me how it really is. Let her tell me the parts that suck and let her be really honest about it because I wanna, now that I have this publisher, I wanna make this book the best it right. can possibly be. And you know what? She's not really. I, th I had this impression that I was hiring this badass. Right? <laughs> it turns out she's actually lovely, you know, on that first. But she is, I think a good editor really has a strong vision. And that's what she has. It's not that she's bitchy. I think I saw her as that. It's really just she, she has a clear beat on things. Mm -hmm. And she sent me back basically a letter outlining the things that she felt could change. Um, it wasn't anything drastic, thankfully. I kept having these experiences of waiting for this right. shoe to drop, and it never happened. You know, I really had people who believed in it who just helped make it stronger. We're having a very New York interview. Lots of sirens and traffic. I like it. It's very, this is New York Women in Communications. It's very New York. What, what would your advice be about accepting feedback on essentially like such a personal project. So I think that's where we all, and I, I love this particular episode in this interview because we talk a lot about your day job and what you're doing with, you know, how you deal with your boss asking for a raise and kind of more traditional career topics. But what a lot of us don't often talk about is when you decide to do something that you're passionate about, whether it's on the side or full time, and you're much more potentially attached to it, how can you apply your lessons of working and things you learn in a job and things that you don't take personally to that? Like what were, yeah, how did, how did that all work out for you? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think you have to have your own vision of what the project is. Like I, I was very tied to this idea that the book would alternate chapters. I was very tied to what I thought was the beginning and the end. Mm -hmm. The middle I was a little fuzzy on, honestly, <laughs> until I wrote it. Um, I did apply some organizational tactics that I had learned at work. Um, like I had a fellow author who had written a memoir in the grief space. Um, she had offered to send me her book proposal, so basically when you go to um, find a literary agent, what you submit to them is a book proposal, and it has an overview of the book. It has a chapter outline of the book with a little blurb about what each chapter will be. Um, it has a bio about you. It has a sample chapter or two. Um, and so I was able now to have this document that I could emulate, and it helped me think about my book in a more tactical way. And help to really map out those chapters and map out the story arc in a way that was fuzzy in my head and then once I made this chapter outline I could see oh okay this is how the plot will really unfold for the reader obviously I knew how it unfolded in my life right but translating that to a book is different yeah no it's really interesting with something so personal you still have to 
wrap your brain around the organization. I mean, I love organization. It's my passion. So I'm like, yes, what are the organizational tips we can use to apply to every single project in our lives? So I feel like something else I did, which was very valuable for me, obviously every writer has their own thing of what's going to work for them, but I honestly didn't spend time on things like getting an MFA, taking a bunch of writing courses. Even the writers groups I was in were very efficient. Like like I said, sometimes it was just two of us on our laptops together in one of our apartments in the evening, both writing. Um, and I felt like for me, the takeaway was that it was more valuable to spend the time just doing the work, mm -hmm. just being head down and writing. Um, I was also reading a lot. I've, I've always been reading a lot of similar books to mine in terms of memoirs about grief or other kinds of memoirs. And I felt like that was part of my education too and how I learned about how to write my own book, mm -hmm. seeing how those books came together, how those stories were told. So. I think we can get kind of lost in the educational aspect of things and it can take away from doing the work. And I think each of us, I kept waiting, honestly, I'm still waiting for someone to be like, you don't know how to write a book. <laughs> so far, no one has told Surprise, me that. Surprise, <laughs> I have this published book. I have the actual physical copy in front of me. It's here. But I mean, I think there's this imposter syndrome of like, you see all these other books and you're like, oh, that person has an MFA, that person has an MFA, that person's a professor, that person's this, that person's that. And you think, I can't possibly really know how to write a book. I felt like I was just winging it. But apparently I can write a book. You did it. You probably can write a book too, whoever you are out there listening. I mean, and I think there's a lot of value of just sitting and writing. It's not the glamorous part. It's isolating. It's solitary. You're missing brunch with your friends. But if, if, if it's valuable to you and if that's something you want as part of your legacy, um, that's how I kind of feel about this mm -hmm. book. I feel like it will outlive me and it's part of my legacy and it's, and it's certainly my mother's legacy. Right. So beautiful. And I feel like this is a fairly, honestly, recent phenomenon, meaning even like in the last 10 years, I started noticing actually back when we were working at Seventeen, where it's like, there are so many resources now, especially with the internet, not to sound super old, but like where you can teach yourself things and learn different things. I mean, obviously books have been around for much longer than that. People had access to read books, but you now can look up like, how do you start writing a book? So I think that, you know, empowering ourselves for anything that we want to do. I remember, just remind me, when we did work together at Seventeen, and in the early days of digital, not to age us, sorry, but I remember there would be a lot of traditional print editors who'd be like, I don't want to learn digital. I don't care to learn digital. Best of luck to you. And we were digital editors. And I remember having the conversation of like, well, now a 16-year-old girl can teach herself how to be a digital editor and she can come in and take your job. Like, we, you know, we got to do it because everyone can learn anything. And since then, it's kind of been like, yeah, when you do want to, you know, start a project. And a lot of times, of course, like going to school, depending on what you want to do, and also like networking and there are elements. But if you do want to do something, I think it's easy to say, well, I didn't study that or I didn't, haven't done this for 10 years. So, but there's really very little, I'm not saying like everyone, you know, can necessarily write a best-selling book right from the start, but everyone can write something. Very um, much so. Yeah. yeah, very much so. And 
I think there's a way to learn everything and it's trying to figure out who those resources are for you. I tried to, like, anytime I met an author, I was like, oh my gosh, can I talk to you? Because I don't know a lot of authors. You know, my world was editors um, and writers who wrote 800 word articles. And all of a sudden I was faced with this 70,000 word book, which from a content perspective was very hard to wrap my mind around. I'm used to 800 word essay, I can read through it 15 times, make sure I've got everything spell checked, everything exactly, every sentence crafted so beautifully. 70,000 words is really hard to wrap your head around. It really gave me respect for book editors. Right. <laughs> it is a completely different... It's a, it's a different genre, obviously, but even just for all of us looking at our future in media and communications and whatever direction this whole world is taking, like, we all have core skills that we've learned from doing this. Like, I'm sure I've said this for my podcast when I studied Com 101 at BU, I remember one of the early lessons was like, yeah, you might study TV or you might study news or journalism or PR, but like the basics are going to be the same. And so I think it's really interesting thinking about like, okay, this is daunting, but I have the basics. I can do it. And and that's what inspired my mom and I to think that we could do this is that we said, we don't know if we can write a whole book, but we can write a chapter right. and then we can write another chapter. And then we write another chapter. I mean, I if you it. break it down, um, our chapters are very short, which I think makes the book read pretty quickly. You're sort of like, oh, I'll just read one more. I'll just read one more. This is what people have told me. They, <laughs> a lot of people have told me they've read it in a day. They've read it in a weekend. I'm like... I'm, it's quick. Yeah. In a good way. Like, you're really... Yeah. You can digest it. I think that's part of it, right? Like, sometimes you're like, have to go back and read the page a million times. Mm-hmm. But you also have an idea of the through line and you want to get to the next part um I could talk about the book forever and I want to make sure that people read it it is the goodbye diaries and by the time you're hearing this episode it will have already come out so it is available to you where books are sold or visit your local books bookstore um and I want to make sure we also talk about the other side of your career which is so exciting what you're doing now which is working at Syracuse, the Newhouse program here in NYC, and you've been helping students with kind of everything, right? Looking for their jobs, networking, learning how to networking, figuring out their resumes, which you have great experience in. So what have been some of the you know, most common misconceptions uh, from your students about the job application process, especially for working in media? Um, and what kind of you know mistakes might they be making on their search? I think we there's been a lot of conversation not to derail us, but around job search recently. I mean, it's always kind of been such a beast, but I think especially in media now when there's more people, less jobs, you send out what feels like hundreds and hundreds of resumes and it's frustrating. And that's a lot of people, you know, that I've talked to within this organization, within communications are just very frustrated. So what are some of kind of, you've probably talked to so many people, learned so many lessons. What are some of the key ones? So the biggest mistake I see young students or recent graduates make is that jobs are found 80% of the time through networking. And the rule should be that then you should spend 80% of your time on the job search networking. Not I love cold, that advice. Not cold applying to jobs online where your resume may or may not just be going into a black hole. And it's interesting at Newhouse NYC because basically students come to our program um, for a semester. They're already 
in the Newhouse School of Communications at Syracuse University, and they choose to have this professional academic um, semester in New York City where they get a great internship during the day, take classes at night, and do a ton of networking. They go on field trips to Google, Facebook, Amazing. Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, they go to advertising agencies. They go to PR agencies. Um, they really learn the communications industry inside and out, and they're always meeting Syracuse University alumni. They're meeting a lot of other media professionals. And then it's so interesting. They meet these people all semester long, and then they come to me and they talk to me about the job search, and they say, I'm applying, but I'm not hearing anything back. And I ask them, I say, how are you applying? Oh, through this website or this website listing. And I said, what about all the people <laughs> you've met? We've introduced you to so many people this semester. Why, why are you not going for coffee with some of the people you've met who you really admired or who you want to work at the company they work at or you want a role like the one that they have? So I think there's still this kind of old school feeling of like, no, I have to go to the job listings because that's going to tell me the jobs that are right. open. But really, you might have coffee with this person who works at, say, you know, Google, and maybe they don't have a position that's open, but maybe then they're going to keep you in mind and they're going to call you a month from then, three months from then. Or maybe they know of a job that isn't listed, right. but it is available. Or maybe they know of like a permalance opportunity there or a freelance opportunity. So um, there's definitely still this feeling of going to the job boards. And I'm not saying don't make that part of your job search. Of course, that's part of your job search. But don't spend a lot of time. Have a cover letter that's very easily editable that you can quickly personalize for that role and for that company. Have a resume or even sometimes maybe two versions of your resume if there are like two different types of roles you're going for where you can have one resume that highlights one role mm -hmm. and one resume that highlights the other. Um, but make it easy to do those online applications and then spend your time networking. Spend your time sending cold emails on LinkedIn to people who you admire. Look at alumni who went to your university because they're going to be so enthusiastic about helping you. Right. That's most so most alumni true, yeah. love helping the younger generation because they know what it did for them. And I think that's that's often a, a key part that people miss. And probably one additional thing with all of this, because this is amazing advice and it's so important and is like understanding it's not necessarily, networking is not going to be instant gratification. I think that, right, like that is the, and listen, I don't wanna say that meaning don't do it, it won't lead to a job, but I think that for me has been my biggest lesson of my career. We we're talking earlier about like being nice, like I've just been nice to everyone I worked with for years. Now I run my own business and I, I'm constantly trying to meet new people and you know, go back to people I've talked to and it's just like, oh, I, I had good relationships with those people. So, you know, time to <laughs> reconnect. But, right, and I think it's also, like, the other the other element of the networking is doing it with some of a, somewhat of a purpose, right? So I think that's the other probably big problem is, like, you're like, hey, can I just chat with you over coffee? Even if there's not a job, at least having a purpose, having your questions planned, you know, that's probably an important element that makes it successful as well. Very much so. Um, I think the time you you aren't spending on the job application boards, that's the time you can spend on researching who you want to reach out to. How are you going to reach out to them? 
if they do agree to talk to you on the phone for 10 minutes or meet you for coffee, what are the questions you're going to ask them and come with a notebook with your questions written mm -hmm. out so that they feel like their time is really being valued and you've done your research and it will also make for such a better conversation because and also we're in an age that it's totally okay to stop. Of course, I mean, you I recommend like, it. Like go on all that person's social media channels. Don't follow them if it's awkward to follow them, but if they're public, yes, you may follow them on Twitter and, and especially request them on LinkedIn. Right. Um, it's weird if you don't know anything about, like if I'm a pub, if I have put myself out there and you don't know anything about me, like come on, do your research. Right, and that's, and that's totally fine and I think there are very natural ways to bring it up without seeming stalkerish. I think you can say, oh, I, you know, I saw you took this great trip to Greece. Like how was that? You know, I've always wanted to go there. Um, there are very natural ways to do it without being like, I saw you had the BLT for brunch last weekend. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, some, some stalking is in order. <laughs> you heard it here first. Just mild, stalk, mild, you know? mild stalking. I, I really, I, I love that. And as we're talking, just like thinking about the 80% networking rule of just like the net, that time it's a lot of time, but it's so valuable, right? And you're saying, like, even potentially more valuable than just sending out your resume, even though it feels like, again, not that you're not going to necessarily get that instant gratification. And I think there's also a place where those things intersect. Maybe you apply for a job at Facebook, and then you go on LinkedIn and say, hey, I wonder if anyone from my college now works there. Yeah. I wonder if there are any alumni who work there. And then contacting that person and saying, hey, I just applied for this role. Tell them what the role is and say, you know, do you have any advice on, if I have a meeting with HR, do you have any advice for me? Um, can you tell me a little bit about your experience working there um, and how you like your role? Can you tell me a little bit about this team that I'm applying to be part of? Yeah, it's, it's really, it's such good advice. And, and networking is complicated, right? So it's like you meet one person and then they can, clearly this is the whole thing of the network, introduce you to someone else. So not being as close-minded of just like, okay, my network is big. It's going to involve a lot of people. It might not be just these five people at the companies that I want to work for. Um, you know, I'm always happy to make introductions for people. They can go on my LinkedIn and be like, look for whoever and then ask me to do. I love that. Um, we, but it's because I built relationships. I always tell students the best question to ask at the end of one of these informational interviews is, do you have any suggestions on anyone else I can meet? Um, especially if the meeting went well. Right. Um, and people are usually always, they can always think of someone, especially if you are very specific about what you want to do, what your interests are, rather than saying, like there are some students I work with who will say, I want to work at a magazine, I'm open to anything. That actually doesn't really help someone figure out who to connect you to. Mm -hmm. If you say, oh, I'm really passionate about, you know, food journalism and my dream is to work at Bon Appetit, all of a sudden I can think of five food journalists who I could introduce you to. Right. No, it's great. It's so it's it's really, really important. And I just think not how anyone I wouldn't say anyone, how most people think about the job search as like this big, huge thing with lots of moving parts rather than just like shooting out a thousand resumes. Um I do want to ask because you have such great experience editing cover letters, resumes, you've seen many, many, what are your top cover letter and resume writing tips, maybe up to three tips. I, I weirdly like love resumes and cover letters. 
I don't know why. Maybe because opposite of a seventy thousand exactly. page book, a resume is one page. Right. It's so it's so doable. Right. And a cover letter too. It's like maybe two or three paragraphs. There's only so much room. Right. And also you can use them so powerfully. Um, so my big advice for both resumes and cover letters is to personalize them for each position. That sounds really daunting. I mean it in a very doable way. So for a resume, I mean sort of what I alluded to before, which is like maybe you're someone who needs two versions of a resume. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're interested in being a music journalist, but you're also interested in maybe working at a music PR company. Right. And maybe you have some experience in both, and so your resume for being a music journalist can highlight the music publications you've written for, and maybe your resume for being a music publicist is more about, uh, maybe you put the PR agency you interned at first. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's really just a matter of reordering your positions in a way that highlights the skills that that employer is going to be looking for. Um, it doesn't mean that you edit your resume every time you submit it. That would be way too time consuming and not really worth your time, especially for a recent graduate who doesn't have that much experience to draw from anyway. Right. Um, and your cover letter, however, that's a place where you can really personalize it in a way that's very easy. I think you can have um, an introductory paragraph and that's the one that's going to be edited. That's the one where you're going to say, why are you passionate about this company? Why are you passionate about this role? And what about your previous experience makes you the best candidate? Um, and then you can have a second paragraph that's more of a summary of the things that you have done previously. And that might be edited a tiny bit just to show how it applies to the role at hand. But the roles you're applying to are probably very similar to one another. That paragraph probably won't need to be edited very much. And then it's a closing paragraph, yeah. and then you're done. So it's really um, just figuring out how to edit that introductory paragraph. And so realistically, because I think to me even, cover letters are daunting. Like writing a cover letter and, you know, luckily I'm not on the job search right now, but... It feels very, that customization, is there any kind of rule or something that people can say to themselves in terms of making it more realistic? Like how much time you should be spending on each one? I don't know if there actually is or, you know, any way to think about it that makes it feel manageable. It's hard to say. I think some, I think it honestly ends up being about which positions are the most well-suited for you. Right. If you're applying to a role that A, is at a company you already love and know intimately, and the position is very aligned with positions you've held previously, it is typically very easy to write that cover letter because it's a, it's similar to talking to a person about what, what you love. It's very easy. It's the positions that you're applying for that maybe are a pivot from what you've done mm -hmm. previously, and you have to explain how right. your previous experience applies to that new role and what still makes you a good candidate. Those can be really tricky to write, and I think it's okay if you need to spend a little more time because a cover letter is really telling your story um, about your journey throughout your career. So um, it's okay if telling that story takes you a little time and I think it's okay to experiment. It's okay to try to tell that story one way to one company and then say, you know what? I never heard back from that company. 
And that could be for a variety of reasons. Right. But maybe the next cover letter I send, I had this other idea for how the cover letter could go. And you know what? I'm going to try that one and see if I get any more traction. So I think it's also okay to have this trial and error and try to see what works and try things out. And we absolutely still need cover letters. You know, there are <laughs> there are more jobs now that don't require yeah. it. However, or sometimes it's optional. And I think when it's optional, it can be very tempting to just say, oh, thank God I don't have to send one. But you're missing that opportunity to tell your story. Then you're just letting your resume tell your story. Right. And if they don't want one at all, don't send one. If it's optional, send one. Because your application will stand out versus all those other people who took the escape route of, right, great, of I'm not doing it. So if it says, if it doesn't say anything, send a cover letter. Yes. <laughs> and if it says maybe, send a cover letter. And if it says no, do not send a cover letter. Which I, I would say, like, I think probably people would even be motivated to send one if they say don't send one because it's like but for me if I was the person reading the resumes I would be like no thanks to all the people that didn't yeah. follow instructions right and I think too with the cover letter keep it short no one wants to read a yes. whole book about your career experience that's really great advice I just um was passing along a resume for someone and they sent their cover letter and it was so short it was probably 10 sentences divided maybe into two or three small paragraphs it said everything and I was like oh, this feels doable. Like, when you're talking about customizable, it was like, it just said what it said. It didn't, it was not lengthy. And you have to think about the person reading it, too. And like, how many they're reading. Right. And really what you want someone to do is quickly read your cover letter, be interested enough that they want to read your resume, and then be interested enough by both that they want to call you for an interview. So both a cover letter and a resume are really just teasers. You don't want to give everything away. Otherwise, there's nothing for them to ask you about in an interview. interview. Yeah. Get, just get them excited about what to ask you. Yes. Well, time flies when we're having fun. This has been so fun. We're going to make it to our lightning round right now. I'm going to ask you some very brief questions and just tell me, tell me the truth. Be honest. Be honest. So what's the best job you've ever had? You know, honestly, the best job I've ever had is the one I have right now. Um, right now, I'm a mix of being an author, and I'm also working at Syracuse University Newhouse NYC with students, and it's so much fun um, having a job as an author where it's just me by myself at my computer writing, and then a job where I actually get to talk to people. Right. <laughs> so it's it's a really a great mix of both worlds. Oh, I love when I talk to people, and they're thrilled with the job they currently have. So what's the worst job you've ever had? It doesn't have to be in media, if that helps at all, if you don't want to name names. Um, honestly, probably the worst job I've had was during the recession when I was still at magazines. Um, it was really, I'm a very naturally happy person, um, and it was very hard to be at a place with such low morale. Everyone was scared of losing their jobs. Everyone was sad about the people they loved working with who had been laid off. Right. Um, you know, the, the bosses who I loved, who had hired me, who had really nurtured me as a writer and editor, had been let go. Um, I've, I found that, like most people, to just be um, a really sad time when you feel really scared about your career and really worried about the future of your career. Um, I think now, in hindsight, we're seeing how the media landscape is changing, and there's still a lot of that going on. Um, but there's also this viewpoint of, you know what, people still want content, people still want to read, people want to read more than ever right now. Mm -hmm. um, journalism schools are actually having increased enrollment, because in our current political climate, 
people are seeing the value of journalism again. Um, so I think each industry is always a mix of things. There are worries about how that industry is changing. Um, and then there's a feeling of, you know what, the, there's a value and a permanence of this industry and yes it's changing but it's always going to be changing right definitely it's just gotta be along for the ride I, I really appreciate that answer also because a lot of times when I talk to people it's like you know the worst job that they've had or that they'll speak to to not name any names is usually you know a summer camp counselor or like some non-media job right but it, 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 it has been difficult at times to work in media and I appreciate the honesty because even if you love it which I think we both do we're both doing you know different things than we were doing when we were working in magazines it's you know it, it realistically it's gonna have its ups and downs like anything else and it definitely has it's funny I was going to tell you that my worst job was scooping ice cream at haagen <laughs> and not because it was scooping ice cream at haagen that part I did not mind I got very strong arm muscles <laughs> But um, I really, for some reason, the people who came in there were always in a bad mood. And I was like, you're getting ice cream. And then they would take it out on, like, me, this, like, teenage girl who was scooping ice cream. And it made me realize how cranky people were. Well, probably the problem with working in an ice cream shop is people are bad moods. And they're like, I need some ice cream to cheer up. This is just maybe speaking from some personal experience. (laughs) And But I would never be unkind to someone serving my ice cream or doing anything ever. But... But then after you probably made them happy and you didn't get to experience it. That's that's true. They left. There they was left. no there was no room for seating in the Oh place. no, you didn't see them enjoy. So you they you just scoop and sayonara. It's so strange though to be mad at a Hagen Doss. Like what a we- what's your day been? If I, you're mad. I know. Uh, however, I think like anyone who has worked in retail yeah. or as a waitress or a waiter, it does teach you to be kind to everyone. I mean, I think I was hopefully already that. And what's the best career advice? you've ever received? I have to say the thing that came to mind was advice about my book. Um, as I'm, I don't think I mentioned this actually. I, I was always really nervous about not having enough content from my mom. Obviously that was going to be something that became a deal breaker because she had passed away and I couldn't get any more content than what I had. Um, and for a while it really paralyzed me from working on the book. I spent about four years not working on it at all. Um, because I was about a third of the way through the book and I just was so worried about not having enough content and I really had this strong idea about it alternating chapters Mm -hmm. in this very equal way and I didn't know what I would do if I didn't have enough. And finally, um, I was newly married and my husband said to me one day, he said, why don't you just try it and see? And it, (laughs) you know? I love it. And it, and it, and he also said, he said, you know what, if you find you don't have enough, maybe that's okay. Maybe it doesn't have to be so equal. Maybe it doesn't have to be so symmetrical. Um, maybe you have a couple chapters that are just from you and then a chapter from your mom. And every time a reader finds a chapter from your mom, it's like a happy surprise. And it just encouraged me. I mean, it also told me I was... I was being a scaredy cat. Right. You know, it definitely called, head. It called me out, which is, I think is like the best part of spouses is that they call you out. <laughs> they know you too well. Um, and it really encouraged me to turn back to the book. And I actually did end up having enough content to make it that equal partnership mm-hmm. that I really wanted from it. So um, that, was, that was really great advice that helped me finalize the book. 
That's great. Just, just like good life advice. Like try it and see. I'm like, that's what I'm going to, oh my gosh, that's my new life mantra. Please tell Mark, thank you. Try it and see. But I mean, how many of us get so wrapped up in anything or even we we're talking about earlier, like the prepare to the preparing to the planning to this. It's just like, do it. I mean, literally that's how this podcast came to be. I know and you know, I wish I had thought of that advice to tell other people, but it was like, we want to do a podcast. We don't know how to make a podcast. Okay, let's see it. And it's been great and fun. Um, no, it's great. And and in the content, it's interesting. Like, when you're reading the book, it's almost, it's it's really so good. And it's almost unbelievable that you do have that content, right? Like, that it does work so perfectly. And it just seems like, oh, well, this book was just meant to be because it's there. You know, for a moment, I'm like, did Marissa write some of this? But then <laughs> I'm like, nope, this is all very authentic. And it's it's really, really beautiful. And it is called The Goodbye Diaries by Marissa Bardak Rammel and her mother, Sally Bardak. And I really think everyone, you know, no matter what your situation is or relationship with your parent, there are valuable things to be read in there. And it's really beautiful. So Thank you so much for being on our show. Oh my gosh. This was just so, so fun. Thank you so much for having me and for letting me talk about my book. And I I hope some of the listeners will consider writing their own book and know that if it takes longer than anticipated, it's, it's okay. I love it. I think it's really good lesson to learn, a great conversation for us to have around. It's so, life is long. This is the life is long and so you know you read sometimes about celebrities that like started their fame after 40 but I do think it's very typical especially um you know with people of our generation to switch gears and you can you know you can do a a lot more believe in yourself yes I mean I started the book when I was 18 and I'm now 36 um so I mean, if your book takes less than 18 years, you will have won. <laughs> this is a competition. Okay, this is the contest. So let us know in 18 years how, is it, how it's going. It's the most boring reality show. <laughs> Watch writers write a book. It's that movie Boyhood, but just people sitting at computer oh, I writing. Love, I love Boyhood. Me too. I love that movie. It's so good. It's very long. It's very long. We want a longer, more boring version of that. That's what I'm looking for. And where can our listeners find you? Twitter, Instagram, where do they want you want them to find you? Sure. You can find me on Instagram. My handle is marissa.bardak.rammel. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook. And my handle there is mbardak. And it's Marissa with one S. It's Marissa with one S. Very important. Something I remembered. Yes. From the beginning. <laughs> Some, I will not get that something wrong. Something I've had to say since elementary school. Mar- oh, Marissa man. with one S. Yeah. Um, and you can also find out more at goodbyediaries.com. You can find out about events that I'm having. I would love to have you attend. Um, and you can find out where best places to buy the book and um, any anything else you may want to know. All the info. Well, congratulations. It is Thank an you. honor to have you on here and to know you and be your longtime colleague oh, and friend. Likewise. Oh, really. Thank you. You've been listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie hockheiser Ilkovich. Thank you to the amazing team that works on this podcast. Chelsea Orcutt, Chrisanne Grise, Kylie Harris, Elizabeth Roberts, Andrea Goldstein, Mandy Carr, and Alex Fetter, who wrote our original theme music. For more information about Coffee Break with New York Wiki, go to newyorkwiki.org slash podcast. That's N-Y-W-I-C-I dot org slash podcast. Thanks for listening.